Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. We have another full, packed, jam-packed show for you today. We have, as our guests, Jeremy Kuzmarov. We have Robert Hockett, KJ No, and Max Wilbert. We're going to talk about Ukraine. Israel Gaza. We're going to talk about lithium. We're going to talk about Taiwan and South Korea. COVID fraud, which is in the news today. But first, we have a couple of fun headlines. Well, some are fun. Some are fun. Some, some are, are important. Really, yeah. You know, like you need to know it for your day, but yeah. some of them are fun. Some just make you mad. Sorry. Well, Sorry about that. The most important issue for us today mm-hmm. is the important issue of a Pennsylvania school board. Yes. That rejected an after-school Satan club for an elementary school. Uh, now, th- that sounds like a little chuckle, right? We get a chuckle mm-hmm, out of that. Mm-hmm. But there are serious uh, freedom of speech issues at play here. Yeah. You know, and this happens all the time. Usually it, happen- it happens around one of the holidays, and it's usually Christmas. A year ago, maybe two years ago, um, in a, a suburb of Chicago, um, the satanic church <laughs> sued uh, the, the city because they had put up a crash and a menorah. And they said, well, wait a minute. There's supposed to be separation of church and state. So if you're going to have a, a Christmas manger scene and a menorah, you got to have a statue of Satan. And they actually won that suit. Now, that's happened a number of times. And sometimes the city will just take down the, the crash and the menorah. Yeah. Uh, rather than give the Satanists their, you know, constitutional uh, rights. Um, That's not what happened in Pennsylvania. It says here, the after-school Satan Club is an after-school program that promotes self-directed education by supporting the intellectual and creative interests of students. Mm -hmm. Totally legitimate. Now, the reason why the school board didn't want to do it is because it was sponsored by the Satanic Temple. But they did that to prove a point. Mm And even though they lost the decision by the school board, I think they won their point. Yeah. And they've done other. I mean, you know, you can think that the Satanic Temple is is goofy or whatever, but they yeah, they they have challenged abortion laws. They you know, they just take yeah. they take uh, laws that are supposed to protect religious rights That's without right. discrimination mm-hmm. across the board and say, OK, well, put your money where your mouth is and adhere to principle instead of what most of these laws do sort of protect protect the ability of Christians to impose their views on other people. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think it's great. I think it's great that they're continuing. There's a documentary about them that I intended to watch and then didn't a couple years ago. I forget exactly what it was. Well, speaking I think of- it was called Hail Satan. Oh, I, yeah. I, I got to find yeah, it. Yeah, it was. I think, it, you know, it got some attention. And speaking of Christians imposing their views, mm-hmm. uh, there was an, an incident uh, yesterday in the Michigan State Senate that has gone viral and has become a national story. It's important. And I wanted to raise it. Uh, a Democratic state senator uh, who who comes from a purple district. Uh, it's the district that represents um, or rather that includes Mitt Romney's uh, hometown. Uh, it was a Republican district. It, it flipped to Democrat, but it's very purple. She uh, she awoke to a fundraiser, a fundraising letter that one of her Republican colleagues had written in which it specifically mentions the Democrats, Senator McMorrow. And it says that she is a groomer and that she is pro-pedophile and that she wants eight-year-olds to be 
uh, taught uh, pedophilia and all these ridiculous, what? outrageous. Do you remember how it justified calling her personally a groomer? Like, because she personally wants to groom children yes. to sexually exploit them? Yes, because uh, she supported a bill that would allow teachers to teach um, the history of slavery. That's, <laughs> that's, what, that's the basis of this. Wow. Yeah. That's the that's basis of this. That's how she's grooming children for her personal Yeah, benefit. because if that happens, then something else happens, and that leads to this, and that leads to that, and the next thing you know, we have people having sex with children. It's nuts. Now, this Republican state senator refused to make eye contact her, with her. She got up on the floor of the Senate, and she said, listen, this is what happened to me yesterday when I woke up and I read this fundraising letter, and it accused me of being a groomer and accused me of being pro-pedophile, and she tore into this woman. It's a long clip. It's, it's four minutes and 44 seconds. We have the first 52 seconds, which sort of lays the, the groundwork for the rest of the talk. Let's listen to that clip. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. So this is an ongoing theme. We've been seeing more and more and more of it all across America. Um, there are Republicans in Florida, in Georgia, in Texas, who believe that these accusations have legs. And so if they don't like your politics or if they want to they want to tar you with critical what's it called theory critical, critical uh, race theory critical race theory which they've never read and don't understand um they'll call you a groomer. Yeah. Well this this is another part of these these culture wars and this is going too far. It's really also just taking the uh Taking the prove a negative ball and running with it. That's right. You know, it's just going, oh, yeah, I guess we can say whatever. Yeah. Pro OK, prove you're not. It's not it's, new. There's yeah. an old story, a famous story that political scientists all know. Uh, when Lyndon Johnson uh, came back from the Second World War, he decided to run for Congress in the 1946 election. And he was losing to an incumbent Democrat. And he told his campaign manager to start a rumor that the Democratic congressman had been caught having sex with a pig. And uh, his campaign manager said, well, that's not true. And Johnson exploded and said, I know it's not true, but let's make the SOB deny it. Well, here we are all these years later, we're eight, almost 80 years later, and we're still having the same fight. It's been updated, yeah, but it's the same fight. Hey, speaking of same fights, we were just talking about this. We're going to talk about this later in the show. Uh, we're probably going to be talking about lithium a lot in the coming weeks and months and maybe years. Yes. But great uh, opinion piece from Bloomberg reprinted in the Washington Post. We are going to get to a little later in the show with maybe two of our guests. It says, want green energy? Cut red tape. Because it turns out 
the reason we're in this climate crisis, it's not, you know, uh, centuries of burning oil and decades of cover ups by oil companies. You know, it, it's it's too much red tape. Right. Holding back lithium and cobalt mining. That's what it is. You got to start slashing that. Yeah. Ah, it <laughs> is. Yeah. Or no, no, no. It's the environmental radicals. Fault. I mean, it is. That's what that is, is exactly what they are saying. We have too much environmental regulation. It is uh, going to be hard to hard to not swear. <laughs> Pretty wild. <laughs> Michelle, maybe I should have saved this for news of the weird nah. uh, at the close of tomorrow's show. But Reuters has come out with a story based on two and a half hours of interviews with a former CIA colleague of mine by the name of Alfreda Scheuer, formerly known as Alfreda Bukowski. Alfreda was known in the CIA as the mother of the torture program. She was involved in torture up to her eyeballs. She continues to support torture. She said so in this Reuters interview. She once flew to a secret prison without having any business there just to watch a man being tortured and to come back to headquarters and brag about it. That was for her own pleasure. Well, now she's retired from the CIA and she has started a new business, get this, as a beauty consultant and life coach. That's right, a beauty consultant and a life coach. The torture lover that we used to call the redheaded devil, which is what we actually called her, is now a beauty consultant and a life coach. Washington is one of those rare cities where just about anybody can reinvent reinvent themselves. This is one of those incredible examples. Her her husband is far better known than she is. He he's a regular on Fox News, Mike Scheuer, and he's a very strong and prominent supporter of QAnon. So listen, if you want to change your life and um uh learn how to live without a conscience uh, learn how to uh, to get ahead in life by stepping on the backs of those around you and to embrace violence and hatred and Islamophobia, text me and I'll connect you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I really want to make the mother of dragoons there you go. work, right? <laughs> there you go. You can make a neon sign. It is, it is and also like, honestly, the, uh, the, the, the wellness world is actually full of such nastiness. Oh, you know? yeah. Like there really is a lot of in this sort of the uh, the original anti-vax crew, right? Who were like, we don't want the measles vaccine. We, we would love to see our children die of diphtheria. You know, the sort of autism fear. There's all that. There, there are a lot of connections between that group of people and uh, sort of um, wellness freaks. Right. We're like there are chemicals and everything yes. that are turning you this, turning you that, which and, and again, with all of it, there's a grain of truth. Right. Like we do have an environmental regulation is too lax. Like there are chemicals sure. fl- floating around that really shouldn't sure. be that, that are, are unregulated. But, yeah, this connection between um, uh, attitudes about the, everything in the world being poisonous and harmful. Yeah, River right? Phoenix used about to. Every I mean, person was, in the world being poisonous and harmful, everything. being a, a pedophile yeah. and et cetera. And then. Um, and then there's just habit of preying on people who are oh, who yeah. are looking for a solution to something in their lives, a, a real health solution, you know, preying yes. on people who have been let down by our cruel medical system and just, you know, uh, extracting hundreds or thousands of dollars. I have a terrible friend of a uh, story of a friend of mine um, whose father was dying of a brain tumor and they didn't realize 
uh, that, you know, because his his he was getting more and more confused because of this tumor, he racked up thousands and thousands of dollars of phone bills from calling uh, different like he, crystal healing, whatever uh, phone lines to talk to psychics. And, and they were just pray, just praying yeah. on sick people. So I think, you know, whatever, I like to buy makeup. I like to put, I like to use skincare products, but there is a, there is a side of all of these worlds that uh, sort of, there are, there are faucets of all of these worlds that coincide and that are really dark and ugly. And you were telling me a story earlier today too, about another idiot trying to make a name for himself. Oh, this YouTuber? Yeah. Oh man. It's so, it's, it's, I have never heard, I had never heard of Trevor Jacob before yesterday no, when I saw this I. story, um, but new enemy of mine. He's a YouTuber. He's got 133,000 subscribers and he mostly posts clips of uh, adventure activities and stunts. And like, I don't care that much about stunts, but I like adventures. I like to go and do difficult things in remote places. I think it's fun. And I think people, you know, should not be so scared of the world around them and go, go try interesting and maybe dangerous things with the right precautions. But this is real garbage. The, the FAA has found that Jacob purposefully abandoned his small plane and let it crash into a national forest in Southern California. He was supposedly flying this 1940s era plane to scatter his friend's ashes over this forest. But in the video that he created, he acts like the plane has malfunctioned and he parachutes out of it. And as soon as he posted this 13 minute video last year, people were calling foul. They were saying among other things. Why, why are you wearing this parachute already, right? You don't usually, I guess, fly a plane with a parachute already strapped to your back. The FAA looked into it and found that, yes, he violated aviation regulations and operated the plane in a careless or reckless manner so as to endanger the life or property of another. And they have revoked his flying license. And they found, among other things, before he jumped out of the plane, using the parachute that he had strapped on the whole time, he made no attempt to contact air traffic control. Right. He didn't try any methods to restart the engine by increasing airflow over the propeller. He didn't look for a place he could land, even though there were multiple areas within gliding range where he could have landed. He just did nothing but go, oh, my gosh. Oh, gosh. jump out of the plane. Opens the window, opens the door already, says, I'm going to have to jump out, you know, and, and jumps out. And it's just the carelessness, right, and disregard for other people, you don't know who's underneath that plane as it falls to the ground. But Southern California, you want to start a fire? In a national right? park in Southern California. And you know that's what's going to happen. Yeah, it could have landed on people. It could have landed on animals. It could have landed. It could have started a, a terrible fire that consumed homes and lives. And just, you know, to get some more YouTube followers or to get some more attention. It's despicable. It's despi despicable. He's going to pay a price. Well, yeah. we've got our first guest on the line. So we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Political Misfits. From Radio Sputnik. That's right. Yeah, I was trying to think, what comes after that? <laughs> we're also live it's in D.C. It's one of those days. And we are live in D.C., and we're going to come right back after this. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. 
I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte, and I'm distracted a little bit because I keep referring back to this video that I just discovered on the New York Post website of Mike Tyson on a plane beating the living daylights out of another passenger. Anyway, yeah. with that being said, in the latest news from Ukraine, the Russian army has essentially taken the southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol. President Putin said today that there's no need to storm the last remaining Ukrainian holdout. That's a steel manufacturing complex where thousands of Ukrainian uh, troops and others, members of the Azov Battalion, for example, are holed up. A, A Russian military spokesman said it would take three to four days to take the complex, but militarily, that's unnecessary. At least it's been so deemed. As many as 120,000 civilians are still trying to evacuate Mariupol. Meanwhile, the Russians have tested a new missile, the RS-28 Sarmat, which the Pentagon is calling the Satan-2. It's an intercontinental ballistic missile, and uh, it has the capability of carrying a large nuclear payload. But a Pentagon spokesman says that it's not a threat to the United States. We're going to get into that in a minute. And Chilean-American journalist Gonzalo Lira is missing in Ukraine. On March 21st, the Daily Beast said that Lyra was, quote, a Russian shill and likely spy, unquote, offering no proof whatsoever and immediately putting him in danger. Lyra responded by saying that if anything happened to him and if his supporters hadn't heard from him in more than a day, he was likely dead and it was the fault of the Daily Beast. Well, nobody has heard from him now for four days. And there are reports that he was arrested by the Ukrainian secret police, murdered, and buried. We're joined by Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's the managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. We're always glad to have you. Let's begin with uh, Mariupol. The Russians have twice given the Ukrainians deadlines to surrender in Mariupol, and twice they've refused. The last stronghold was this steel plant. Now the Russian government says that the steel plant isn't important and that the city is under almost complete Russian control anyway. Uh, what changed, do you think? Well, I, I, I mean, I think they've achieved the victory there. Uh, you know, it seemed clear that the resistance was led by the Azov Battalion, yes. uh, which, you know, neo-Nazi connections and affinities. Uh, it's likely, you know, most of the population probably, you know, uh, side with the Russians. Uh, so, you know, there's only so long uh, that the uh, resistance could hold out there. And I think, you know, it's, it's come to a conclusion, unfortunately, at a terrible expense for the uh, population of Mariupol. Uh, there was a, Br- a British mercenary uh, named uh, Aidan Aislin who compared uh, Mariupol to Stalingrad during World War II. I mean, the city seems to be just completely leveled. And this mercenary actually was blaming the Ukrainian. He said it was very reckless of them to try and fight to the death when it was a you know futile cause, and they should have just uh, surrendered and, and spared the lives of people. But uh, unfortunately, yeah, there's been a lot of suffering and, and damage, and he, uh, he said it would take years to recover, you know, yeah. maybe 10 years before the city uh, is in any way like it was before. Why is Mariupol so important to Russian strategy? Is it symbolic because it's the base of the Azov Battalion? Is it because it's a port city? Is it because of the sheer size of the place? I, I actually didn't realize until hostilities uh, uh, flared up there how big it was. It's a it's a very populous place. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, it, you know, it's uh, proximity to Crimea. You know, I think the, the Russians are trying to establish a corridor through Crimea 
that will secure Crimea and any supply lines uh, uh, through Crimea. So that's another factor, uh, as well as the ones you mentioned. Tell us a little bit, Jeremy, about this new missile. Uh, first, when I first read about it, I assumed that it actually was called the Satan Two, and I said to a friend of mine, "Why would the Russians name this thing the Satan Two? Like, is that supposed to scare people?" And then I realized it's not called the Satan Two. That's what the Pentagon is calling it. Secondly, this is a this is a major ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic uh, missile. It carries a huge payload. But then the the Pentagon, which named it Satan, tells us. Oh, no worries. No problem. Don't worry about this. It's not a threat to us. What's what's the truth here? Well, that that seems contradictory. I mean, I mean, yeah, I think it is a threat. I mean, we we see the threat of the growing arms race. And unfortunately, oh, there were treaties in place, uh, you know, that like the INF treaty uh, that the Trump administration just shredded. uh, And with this, you know, war going on. It's just an inducement for both the United States and, and Russia to invest very heavily in these sophisticated and very ominous weapon systems. So I think, I mean, maybe Satan is an exaggeration. I mean, the U.S. has similar type weaponry in its arsenal. So there's obviously a you know, public relations element. They want the American public to fear the Russian and you know see the Russians as evil. But you know, this arms race is going on on both sides, and I, I think it's ominous for all of humanity. Yeah, I I would have to agree. If the development of this missile wasn't meant as a message to the U.S. and it's and it's not necessary to fight the Ukrainians because it's an ICBM, it's a long range missile. Then why the big announcement? What what was the message that the Russians were trying to send with this announcement? Well, yeah, I, I think you know the U.S. has clear regime change designs, uh, so and I think this is a message you know back off. I mean you know we're capable of destroying you. And, you know, it's, it's a deterrent. I mean, Russia will develop these kind of weapons as a deterrent, just like North Korea will develop uh, nuclear weapons or Iran may try. Uh, and, you know, Libya, I think they see the example of Libya. Libya was developing a nuclear program, and then they made a deal with the United States, you know, Gaddafi in the early, around 2006 or 2008, uh, to halt the nuclear program. And then, lo and behold, a few years later, uh, he was overthrown and, yep. and lynched. So. Uh, they don't want that to happen, and I think they want to project an image uh, of strength and that they could destroy the United States if it furthers these regime change designs, which seem very blatant that, that the U.S. is trying to do so. I think Biden came out and said that. Yeah, I think that uh, that the message from Washington has been clear, that, that this is, for us, a long-term regime change operation, that that's, that's really what the goal of this whole thing is. Um, I, I have to ask you about uh, Gonzalo Lira. I, I paid very little attention to him. Even after the the, the uh, Daily Beast article came out, I paid very little attention to him until he disappeared. Um, I, I thought it was all overblown. I was wrong. It's not overblown. Uh, the Daily Beast accused him of being a spy. And within, you know, a couple of weeks, he went missing. Scott Ritter said on Twitter last night that he had heard that Lyra had been arrested by the Ukrainian secret police, that he had been murdered and buried. But then last night, a new Twitter handle popped up claiming to be Lyra and saying that he had been arrested, questioned and released. But we don't know if this new Twitter handle is really him or if it's a troll or a fake or, you know, a, a nut or whatever. Um, nobody has seen him. In the meantime, 
What have you heard? What's the lesson to be learned from this whole situation? Well, I think uh, you know there was an important report published in the Gray Zone Project uh, earlier this week about you know Phoenix-style programs that are being run by the Ukrainian uh, special services, mm. where they're kidnapping dissidents and even targeting mayors, uh, including mayors who favor negotiations uh, with the Russians uh, or more you know maybe more favorable towards Russia or at least uh, accommodation with the Russians. Uh, they're being assassinated. Uh, and there's wide-scale yeah, kidnappings and torture of leftists, uh, political activists. The Zelensky government uh, banned 11 political parties, uh, including the mm-hmm. Socialist and Communist Party. Uh, so there's a huge, wide campaign of political repression, uh, and it may have extended even abroad. Uh, there's uh, reports of some uh, dissidents being kidnapped uh, uh, in, uh, abroad. So. Uh, I think the American media has been given an extremely misleading and distorted picture of, of Zelensky, who's presented some kind of hero, when really he's uh, running a large-scale state terror operation uh, that the CIA appears to be uh, behind and uh, supporting as advisors to the SBU. Uh, so this is you know hor- horrific. And yeah, Covert Action has a ma- an article coming out that compares it with the Phoenix program. And uh, I interviewed Douglas Valentine, who wrote the seminal book oh. on the Phoenix program. Oh, yeah. And he sees all, all the tra- – which was the operation in Vietnam where they would kidnap and torture and murder dissidents uh, in Vietnam. And I think a trademark was a lack of due process, uh, you know, and that's what we appear to see in the Lyra case. He was accused of something. There's never a court. He's just kidnapped, tortured, maybe murdered. Uh, maybe in his case he's released, but others like him have been. Uh, you know, we can hope he's still alive. Others like him are not alive, and there was never any trial. And you know, a prominent Ukrainian official came out. You know, there was a mayor murdered uh, in one of the eastern Ukrainian towns, and he said he was tried in the People's Tribunal, but that's not uh, uh, the, the the formal legal court no. structure. And he said, oh, another traitor was killed. That's good. So, uh, I mean, and that's what happened under Phoenix. There was a lack of due process and there was just uh, night raids and kidnappings uh, and horrific human rights abuses. And I think, you know, at this point, you know, uh, people should be uh, outraged by this and there should be, uh, you know, a push for Congress to investigate this further and, you know, cut, cut funding. The U.S., Citizens shouldn't be funding a campaign of state terrorism, and we should also uh, demand the media report on the truth and not create a hero out of somebody who's running um, you know, state terrorist operations and is far from a, a democratic leader. He's banned 11 parties. He's doing exactly what they, you know, they present Putin as an authoritarian. Uh, uh, maybe there's some truth to that, but they never um, point to Zelensky's authoritarianism and, and you know, huge, again, repression. Uh, that that's chilling, really. Uh, this is a very important point. Yeah, you raise you raise a very important point here. Uh, just before we came into the studio, I got a push notification that uh, the Biden administration is asking for yet another eight hundred million dollars uh, in weapons for Ukraine. This is the third tranche of eight hundred million, in addition to the many billions that we've already um, sent. But nobody has ever said anything about oversight. Nobody's ever said anything about making sure that these, you know, go to the right people or or don't fall into the wrong hands. In fact, yesterday, the New York Times had an article in which an administration official was quoted as saying that when we turn over the weapons to the 
Ukrainians, it's like throwing them into a black hole because we don't have any idea what they're doing with these weapons and these systems. Is, is there any talk about tightening this up and, and ensuring that our tax money and our, and our arms and our materiel are not going to violate human rights and to support these star chambers where people are apparently being taken for quote unquote justice. Yeah. And, and this seems reminiscent also of Syria uh, where, you know, huge arms pipeline was developed and, you know, it was claimed they're going to moderate rebels. But as you say, there was really uh, no filtering uh, and proper oversight, and it was going to jihadist extremists and terrorists for years, uh, and probably still going there. Uh, and you know, I think it's a mis- you know, in the case of Ukraine, I mean, I think what's to distinguish the Ukrainian nationalists from the Azov Battalion? I mean, they're they're fighting the Russians and they're using di- dirty methods uh, to do so. And, and you know, the the Secret Service is serving the Zelensky government, which has banned all those political parties. And is targeting leftist activists. I mean, they arrested one of his chief rivals, Viktor Medvedchuk, uh, who had you know signs of being tortured in captivity. Uh, so I think you know I would advocate for an immediate arms embargo. Obviously, in this political climate, <laughs> that may not go far. But I think people of conscience and, and progressives have to really expose what's going on and generate a movement for an arms embargo. Right now, there's no support for that in the Congress, but there should be, given that this money is is going to fund repression and it's going to fund the continuation of the conflict uh, instead of, you know, it's basically a barrier to any diplomatic solution uh, because it gives confidence that to the Ukrainians that they could, uh, you know, uh, drag, you know, maybe, you know, uh, fight the Russian more successfully with all this weaponry and hope of Western intervention. So they're not going to agree to any Russian terms at the uh, bargaining table. So we're just fueling the suffering by by sanctioning arms shipments. We're fueling the suffering of the Ukrainian people and prolongation of the war. But that may be what the executive branch wants, because as you pointed out, they want a regime change in Russia. So they want to bog the Russian down the quagmire yep. like in Afghanistan. Yep. And then the population will get uh, unhappy. You know, the sanctions will start to take their effect and the population will turn against Putin. But so far, that hasn't happened. The public opinion polls show Putin more popular uh, than he was before the war. So the political strategy is not working, and it's causing an absolute humanitarian nightmare. Jeremy, what should we expect next from the Russian military? The war is now pretty clearly concentrated in the east and the south of Ukraine. Should we expect a Russian move on Odessa soon? That's certainly something the Ukrainians are worried about. I would think so. Yeah, I mean, this fighting in Donbass could take a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians will fight hard. Uh, they're you know ideologically motivated. Some of them are you know right wing fanatics, and they're getting all this weaponry. So I don't think you know the Donbass will be over tomorrow. It's going to take time, and then yeah, Odessa may be next. What about Russian rocket attacks in the West? That's where the NATO weapons are arriving. There's training of Ukrainian troops there, and the Russians have already hit the Western sites uh, twice. Should we expect to see more of that, or do you think that they really are going to focus solely on on the Donbass and uh, and the Crimea? I think they'll focus mostly on the Donbass and the Crimea, and they may may have certain clear political objectives in place, uh, and they want may want to you know part, have Ukraine ultimately partitioned. And to have those areas uh, incorporated into Russia, so I think that's going to be a primary focus. 
finally, what will U.S. and and Western um, responses be? You know, I, I can't imagine that there's anything left to sanction, right? The, there, there are no more uh, billionaires that we can, you know, confiscate their yachts. Uh, we've essentially cut off international financial transfers to the Russians. Arms are flowing to Ukraine. There are no peace talks scheduled. What happens next? Or do we just sit back and, and you know, wait for the fighting to finally end? Well, sadly, I think the executive branch wants the fighting to go on because, yeah. again, their strategy is, is to bog Russia down like Afghanistan. You know, it's a repeat of that strategy, which was adopted by his big new Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter, yes. national security advisor, and I think Obama's professor at, at Columbia. And his son, you know, is the ambassador to Poland. Yes. That's where a lot of the arms are going through. And, you know, they're kind of ideological fanatics and uh, they're extreme Russophobes. And unfortunately, I think the Biden administration is dominated by those kinds of people. And Biden himself has a long career uh, of, of taking a hard line against the Russians and supporting Ukraine. And his family had been involved in corruption uh, in Ukraine. So uh, I, I think the U.S. will try and just go the Russians further. And unfortunately, this current administration doesn't want a peaceful resolution, which is what we all want. I think that you know, most of the world public wants, and certainly the Ukrainians, the best interest of the Ukrainian and Russian people. Jeremy, there seems to be a problem uh, that's popped up between Poland and Russia over funding for uh, the Russian embassy. Poland doesn't want to allow Russia to transfer funds to keep its embassy running, and Russia is threatening to do the same thing to Poland. But this is all governed by international treaty. It's very clear that no country can interfere with another country's ability to maintain its embassy. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you have chaos. Um, mm -hmm. What's going on here? Is this something that we ought to be worried about? Is this sort of a backhanded way of, of putting the Russians out of the diplomacy business? I think so. Yeah, as you say, it's a move away from uh, from diplomacy, uh, engagement among nations. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of a declaration of war, not just with Ukraine, you know, but Poland. Uh, and, you know, we're headed toward not just a Cold War, but a possible world war involving many different countries. And I, I think it's a very dangerous world situation right now. And we need calmer heads to prevail. But uh, unfortunately, I think the upper levels of the U.S. government, and it seems a lot of governments in Europe, are dominated by more hardline, risophobic extremists. Jeremy, before we let you go, tell our listeners about Covert Action Magazine and uh, what you're working on there. Uh, sure. Well, Covert Action Magazine was founded in the 70s by CIA whistleblower uh, Philip Agee, and it was revived uh, in the last several years by Philip Agee's son, Chris Agee. And we published yeah, a lot of articles you know, exposing uh, U.S. covert operations and looking critically at U.S. foreign policy uh, interventions. And we have had quite a few articles on the Ukraine war, and we have an article uh, coming out yeah, this weekend about this Phoenix-style program yeah, that builds off the Gray Zone Project report and includes an interview with CIA expert Douglas Valentin, who compares the situation in Ukraine with, with Vietnam and the Phoenix program. And we also yeah, have an article about mercenaries uh, coming up and this British mercenary who's uh, – kind of had an about face and uh, says he was on the wrong side and, you know, regrets uh, ever signing up and kind of urging people not to go fight for Ukraine because, you know, the British government and other gov governments are encouraging their citizens to, to fight Ukraine, not only send arms, 
but actually go and fight as mercenaries. And he says that's you know a trap. They're they're being used, and it's a bad cause. So uh, we we you know have articles like that. We also have some historical pieces. Like I just did a major uh, study that I uh, studied for a year, the Oklahoma City bombing, and the kind of conspiracy behind it, and how Timothy McVeigh was really a patsy. So we do historical inquiries into you know controversies involving the CIA and possible black flag operations. And we also cover you know contemporary affairs uh, with you know critical kind of look on U.S. foreign policy. Great, thank you. That was the voice of Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking a little bit now about COVID fraud, mm-hmm. which isn't new, but some of these criminal charges are. And I think it is interesting to see who is being accused of taking, of taking advantage in this crisis, because it is not sort of street level scam artists, people milking, trying to uh, bilk the uninsurance, uh, unemployment insurance system. No, no, no. This is in some ways the system kind of functioning the way it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. So the Wall Street Journal yesterday uh, reported that federal prosecutors have charged about 20 people over the past two weeks with allegedly engaging in fraud schemes related to the pandemic, amounting to about 150 million in improper government claims, about 20 million of which have been paid. And the government, uh, the Justice Department is is looking specifically into programs that were pumping billions of dollars into the healthcare system and finding that people within that system that's supposed to save people, that's supposed to help people, have been using the crisis to just make some extra money. And so as examples, we have a doctor who ran drive through a drive through COVID-19 testing site who allegedly billed Medicare for many of those tests. Uh, along with uh, 1.5 million in other physician visits that purportedly accompanied the test that never actually happened. So he's billing for these tests and he's also billing for his doctoring hours that he didn't actually uh, allegedly uh, engage in. You had a nurse practitioner who allegedly billed Medicare for 134 million in fraudulent claims using relaxed telemedicine rules to sign orders for completely unnecessarily unnecessary tests and equipment. You have two owners of a lab who are accused of using COVID-19 testing to obtain personal information and saliva or blood samples from patients and then use that data to submit more expensive tests to the tune of $100 million. And you have, this is just a little cherry on top, a defense contractor with a security clearance who's accused of taking part in a fake vaccine card scheme. Yeah, yeah. Joining us to talk about, you know, uh, how how different this fraud is from the run of the mill fraud that I think exists in our in our healthcare system is Robert Hockett. He's Edward Cornell, professor of law and a professor of public policy at Cornell University. He's a senior counsel at Westwood Capital and he's a fellow of the Century Foundation. Robert, thanks for joining us. 
Hey, guys, great to be with you again. Thanks so much. So I just I wanted to talk to you about this because I think it is a good opportunity to discuss how to some degree, uh, our whole health insurance system is set up for fraud. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, looking at looking at some of these charges, uh, you know, what what's the message that you take away from, uh, you know, about our healthcare system and also about the way the U.S. tried to support it during this crisis? Great. Yeah, I guess a couple of things that come to my mind, uh, Michelle. The, the first is that even though we're a sort of mixed economy, and hence even though there's typically going to be a sort of mix of public sector efforts and private sector efforts to address national problems, even though that's the case, it seems to me that three things have to be sort of added to that you know, general observation. The first is that we should minimize, I think, the private sector involvement in any matter that is sort of existential, right, that touches on basic human existence, basic human health, basic human nourishment, um, anything that's sort of fundamental in that way is better, uh, it's better to keep the sort of profit motive out of. That's the, the first point. Um, a second point is if there is nevertheless going to be some kind of a mixed public-private involvement or partnering uh, in contexts like this, the public sector um, member of the partnership, so to speak, has to be firmly in the driver's seat. It can't be a matter of simply channeling public money that has been um, uh, sort of accumulated through taxation or whatever to, um, uh, again, profit-motivated private sector actors. And then finally, thirdly, when uh, criminal activity is indeed found on the part of the private sector actors or for the public, the public as well, for that matter, um, you've got to treat it pretty seriously and you've got to punish it pretty seriously. You guys are probably old enough to remember when um, uh, Martha Stewart was convicted um, of insider trading. And the joke, of course, was that she was sent to a sort of country club uh, mm -hmm. as her, her form of imprisonment. And that's what we tend to do with these sort of upscale folk, the doctors and the lawyers who commit the fraud. And then it's just ordinary people like you and me who get thrown in the clink with the, you know, in the unpleasant environment. Uh, it seems to me that um, that's inverted uh, from the way things ought to be. It seems to me that people who act like common criminals, even if they're wearing stethoscopes and, and, and white lab coats, ought to be made to know that what they are is indeed common criminals and tossed in the same kinds of prisons that everybody else is um, when they're found, uh, found guilty of uh, committing felonies. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. This uh, healthcare is so expensive in the United States right now. You know, it's just the the costs spiral so much that there is a huge incentive to grab a piece where you can. And when you talk about, you know, if you are going to have a public private partnership, having the public aspect of it be in the driver's seat. I mean, in this case, we're talking about Medicare and Medicaid uh, interacting with private health insurance companies. Is there a way we could have, uh, I mean, I, I suppose not in the midst of a pandemic, could we have uh, elevated the authority of those public sector uh, branches of this partnership? But could we mm -hmm. establish a situation where, uh, where in which Medicaid and Medicare have, have more power in their dealings with the private healthcare industry? Yeah, it seems to me that if you keep a better public health infrastructure in place just as a matter of course, then, um, you know, sudden exigencies that come up, um, like the COVID pandemic in uh, early 2020, are more easily dealt with. And you don't have to sort of go slapdash in the way that we kind of did, um, you know, under conditions of, you know, acting in, in extremists. So there's that. Um, but the other thing is, even if we didn't do that, um, you know, it would be a perfectly legitimate and indeed, I think, um, 
called for thing uh, to do if, if you were a public authority saying we're suddenly going to flood a bunch more public money into the system to address this problem as quickly as possible since we don't have time to build up more public infrastructure or public offices or whatever to sort of remind all the private sector folk who are going to be making use of this funding that there are anti-fraud laws mm-hmm. and that anybody who misuses this funding uh, or who abuses um, this uh, social service uh, is going to you know be met with the, the full force of the law and they're not going to be sent to uh, country club prisons. Yeah, it is just it's it's a shame because I feel like the these fiascos are going to be used as an example of why uh, you can't trust the government to do things and why increasing funding is is pointless because it just increases fraud. And, you know, why we actually we need to have the government completely out and just everybody bootstrap themselves out of a pandemic. I feel like that is always uh, that is always somehow the message that gets carried forward instead of what if we what if we started to sort of pick apart this exploitative and rapacious uh, private healthcare industry that we already have and gave the government actually more power to to regulate and more power to to punish. And so I wonder, like, how do we come out of this? What lessons should we learn coming out of this that aren't uh, depressing ones like oh, don't just don't ever let the government do anything. It always messes up. Well, I think um, I guess one thing we can do is right off the bat point out that those who say don't let the government do anything, it always messes things up, are in effect trafficking in sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? They're making it more likely that that kind of thing happens precisely by sort of communicating to everybody that that our expectations of government folk are no higher. Um, It's also worth pointing out that these same people who are always saying this are the ones who are always cutting the funding to the enforcement arms mm-hmm. of the various public agencies that are doing the kind of work that needs uh, doing. Uh, the IRS, as you guys know, has all sorts of enforcement authority with respect to lots of different forms of uh, financial and wire fraud. Um, but of course, Republicans in the Congress and some moderate Democrats, as so-called moderate Democrats as well, are quite frequently uh, cutting the budget of the IRS, uh, which of course um, impairs its capacity to hire sufficient staff and to do sufficient investigating actually to enforce the law that's on the books. Yeah, I think sort of a lot of the story of the pandemic has been having systems up and running before a crisis, right? And as you say, it's sort of we've talked about it in the context of unemployment insurance. We've talked about it in the context of public health. But yeah, also in the context of enforcement, it would be useful. So when you do have to send tons of money into a system, you have people who are already there to watch it. I want to also ask briefly about... Um, what is potentially another going to be another funding burst, and that is money being pushed into green energy right now. And of course, I do think we need to move away from fossil fuels and to do it quickly. But there is some concern that in, you know, funding new green energy projects, that a lot of these green energy projects are going to be driven by uh, metals mining particularly lithium, but also nickel and cobalt. And that something that is starting to like a ball that's starting to roll right now is just creating a a huge pot to push toward green energy projects that is just going to go, you know, be accelerated toward some of these companies which exist, which already have very dirty, nasty histories. And so I'm wondering, you know, how could we possibly avoid a repetition of these COVID funding mistakes in funding these green energy projects? 
Yeah, so I think um, that's a great question. I think one way, of course, is to include uh, or to do all of the things that we were just talking about in connection uh, with COVID relief or with healthcare. But I think in the case of green energy, we probably also want to do more. Um, so, uh, of course, what we're really going to have to do as we transition to green energy is, in effect, mobilize and reconstruct our economy along Earth-friendly lines. Um, and the scale, therefore, of the transformation that we're going to be, in effect, enacting here is is going to be, in effect, unprecedented, or at least last precedented, probably at the time of the Second World War mobilization. The effort, in other words, will be on that sort of scale. And it seems to me that given that fact, we can actually learn a good deal from the way we did the Second World War mobilization. So when we did that, again, it was a mixed public-private sort of arrangement that we used. But first, the public sector entities were firmly in the driver's seat. There was no question about that. And what essentially what the public sector did was to provide the facilities that effectively we built, I think, 2,300 factories, uh, new factories and new sort of healthcare facilities around them and neighborhoods and housing around them and schools around them so that the workforce could be adequately um, uh, cared for and their kids could be educated and so forth. And then the private sector simply did the producing within those federal facilities. And that ended up working quite nicely because there was never any question but that the feds were in charge and the private sector was simply doing their bit as prescribed by the War Production Board and the War Industries Board and a number of other sort of federal agencies that were constructed in order to oversee that effort. Seems to me that with the Green New Deal or Building Back Better or whatever moniker we end up giving to this effort, that we ought to try our best to sort of replicate that particular effort because that was on the one hand giving recognition to the fact that we are indeed a mixed economy, a public sector, private sector entity on the one hand, but always keeping everybody firmly apprised of the fact that the public is the the, 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 the partner that is sort of in the driver's seat. And one, one final point in, in this connection, by the way, any time the private sector companies who are using these federally built factories to produce war material or munitions or what have you, anytime they were doing that and they were uh, accused um, substantially uh, of violating labor laws or of uh, engaging in discriminatory practices on racial grounds that elicited strife within the facilities, the federal government simply threatened to take over just to sort of send in troops and take the fact, seize the factory away from the private sector entity that was using it and putting somebody else in there to do the job. That was, you know, a, a public sector that actually had teeth um, that sort of knew its role and knew its powers and knew what it had to do to keep the private sector partners sort of in line with the uh, with the overall national effort. And I think we're going to have to do the same thing uh, with transforming our, our economy into a green energy economy. Yeah, it's just we'd have to fight against sort of decades of the erosion of all of that power till now we just have the idea that it is it is only the private sector that ever does anything or makes anything and is only the government that uh, cre creates a thicket of regulation around it to be, you know, either smashed through or or ignored or, you know, or uh, accepted in accepted as fines. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we, we really, I think um, it's hard to know exactly how to begin this particular effort. It might be something that each of us has to do individually. But mm -hmm. I do think it's important that maybe all of us as citizens 
uh, begin to kind of question and object to the routine cliched characterization of the public sector as a source of um, you know sclerosis and incompetence and uh, corruption and the private sector as being clean and efficient and doing everything right. If anything, it's quite the contrary. It's the people who are motivated by a profit motive and the people who are not actually overseen carefully by anybody else who are the ones who tend to do the worst. Um, and that's, of course, basically the private sector. It is a shame this sort of conversation about the good old days has been kind of inverted, right? So that people who tend to talk about the good old days mean, you know, longing for a time when uh, racial and gender inequality was greater than it is today instead of going, no, we should abandon that. That was bad. But maybe there was something economically we can learn. Maybe that is a precedent that is, youth, you know, uh, useful to to hang up and, lo- and look back on. I want to ask you uh, about something else, about the care economy before we run out of time. I saw this story in The New York Times asking, can robots save nursing homes? And it just made me so sad. And it's talking about how the pandemic led to more isolation of the elderly in nursing homes. And so wouldn't it be great if we could have robots delivering their food and helping people get up and reminding patients to take their pills and, yeah, offering you know, screens through which you can talk to your family and loved ones. And it's horrifying, right? The, the story talks about it, the, an exodus from nursing homes of both staff and patients uh, saying that since 2020, more than 300 of these homes have closed and more than 400,000 workers have left the profession. Nowhere in the story, which mentions the cost of these robots and the amount of uh, grant money that's been put to different projects and and everything else. Nowhere does it mention that uh, nursing home aides earn salaries of like maybe $40,000 a year. And so it's this, honestly, I was, I was astonished that nowhere does this figure get a mention. Oh, maybe this is why the exodus, maybe it's not just that the pandemic made everybody kind of scared. And so I wanted to talk to you about like care work, salaries, and, and technology and the way we are sort of ignoring these the, the economic potential of paying people more to do this important work and trying to fill these gaps with robots. Yeah, yeah. I saw that story too, Michelle, and I, I actually wept um, at, so the, at the image in particular. Right? There was a photograph of a, an elderly woman uh, raising her hands over her head in imitation of the robot that was apparently guiding her through some kind of exercise. The, the pathos of that particular image and of that story was just dreadful. I think uh, maybe two things to say. One, um, sort of about this specific matter, but then uh, also the other about how this matter kind of ties in with something we were talking about earlier. Let me start with the last first, actually. Um, so, you know, as you've probably read and are probably well aware, uh, the private equity industry has gobbled up nursing homes all over the country, um, and they now own a huge percentage of the total assets of this particular industry all across the country. And we have all sorts of statistical data that has come in since um, the early spring of 2020, showing that all of the worst health outcomes, all of the deaths, all of the abuses have happened in the private equity equity-owned nursing homes. Now, that is, on the one hand, the explanation for why the people who work there are underpaid, because private equity is all about extraction. But it also is worth noting that we've allowed private equity to get into other areas that I earlier referred to as sort of existential or sort of basic human well-being uh, industries that we shouldn't allow the profit motive to be acting in at all, including, for example, housing. You guys have probably noted uh, that all sorts of residential housing has been being purchased by private 
private equity firms and then renting it out. These are even single family homes and double family homes. And what happens is the prices shoot up. You get all this sort of speculation with respect to those forms of real estate. And then people can't afford uh, to move into houses uh, any longer. So we've got a kind of private equitization in effect of all sorts of spheres of the economy that used to be spheres that were directly publicly provided to begin with. And then second, even when they were privately provided, they weren't provided by private equity firms, which are, again, all about extraction, but were instead provided by nonprofit firms that were then very carefully overseen by the public sector. We simply have to restore that. And I think the best way to do it is to start by going right back to square one and saying we are going to publicly provide these. And I'm actually working with some legislators in New York right now on legislation that would enable the state in a effect to take nursing homes in uh, uh, in eminent domain away from abusive private equity firms and then turn to uh, restore um, their being run as public uh, entities, public sector entities. I think we've got to start a move of that sort um, and try to build a groundswell around it where public sector, um, municipal governments, state governments or federal agencies, whatever it is, start taking those nursing homes away uh, and uh, from the, the, the PE firms that mm -hmm. are abusing those who live there, uh, and then showing how it's done, showing how you run these things correctly, which should not be for profit, but should be for the good of the residents and their families. Mm -hmm. And also, honestly, just should not be that complicated. You know, I mean, it's yeah. a it's a huge political task, but it's not it's a, not a huge technical task. I wouldn't think no. that was lot. Yeah, exactly. That was law and public policy professor Robert Hockett. Always great to talk to you, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us. You too, Michelle. Thanks so much. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. An odd thing happened in Taiwan earlier this week. A Taiwanese television station apologized yesterday for, quote, causing a panic, unquote, when it erroneously ran a series of alerts saying that China had launched attacks on the island. The announcements were very specific and included, quote, New Taipei City hit by Communist Army's guided missiles. And vessels exploded, facilities and ships damaged in Taipei Port. The city, I'm sorry, the station said that an employee had accidentally released the announcements, which were part of a drill that it had been commissioned to produce for the new Taipei City Fire Department. In other news, South Korea's incoming foreign minister said that a pact that the country had signed with Japan in 2015 that put an end to their historic feud over so-called comfort women during World War II is official. The Japanese military during World War II forced hundreds of thousands of Korean women into military brothels to service Japanese soldiers. As many as 75% of the women were killed or otherwise died while in this captivity, and the issue has been a major problem in South Korean-Japanese relations ever since. But not all Koreans believe that the 2015 agreement settles things. They argue that the agreement is deeply flawed 
and that it does not provide the relief necessary to restore dignity to the victims. We're joined by K.J. No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focused on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region, and he's a member of Veterans for Peace. Welcome back, K.J. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. We're always very happy to have you, KJ. Uh, Let's start with this odd mix-up in Taiwan. Everybody knows that Taiwan is under constant threat from the Chinese. At least they assess that they are. Um, It's something that the people of Taiwan live with every day. These, These mistaken announcements must have panicked people. We had a similar incident in Hawaii, uh, what was it, a year or two ago, when an incoming nuclear attack was announced. What was it like in Taipei? How did they deal with it? Well, you know, I think Taiwan is a little bit different from Hawaii. In Hawaii, we knew we know that there was, you know, massive fear and panic. You right. Know, at least one person died from a heart attack. <laughs> but a Taiwan, you know, is always running these types of exercises. Since 1978, it's had what are called the one and exercises, which are about this is essentially an air raid drill, and it also has, you know, constant tsunami, earthquakes, and typhoons. So it's not under. Uh, you know, it's not like the people would suddenly panic. What we do know is that there were massive calls that went into the station, the government-owned TV station, to ask them to clarify because they didn't see the other signals that would go along with it. That is, you know, air raid sirens and text messages, which they've been receiving since 2019. So, you know, it was very odd. But I think the key thing to note about this about this uh, situation was that, you know, what's clear is that Taiwan has prepared messages claiming that China is attacking and invading, which uh, in this situation bear no relation to facts. And we know that these messages are also highly political and ideological. They're not simply about uh, you know, um, a train station being, uh, you know, bombed. And right. Claimed. They also talked about panic buying in the supermarkets and that the Taiwanese president had declared a state of emergency effective 8 a.m. March 6. And that's another strange thing because that date does not correspond to the date of the uh, emergency. No, they claim it was the 20th, I believe. Uh, Yes. So there there are too many questions here, but certainly there's ideological messaging going on. And all of this comes in the heels of the distribution of a civilian war manual to the population and also in the heels of, you know, um, six legislators who recently visited, U.S. legislators who recently visited Taiwan province, Michelle Flournoy, uh, Pelosi canceled a trip. So there's massive red lines that are being trampled that we all know are triggers for China, you know, to take uh, serious action. So, you know, is this related to the U.S. Uh, attempting to prepare or trigger war with China? And why are these messages so, uh, why are these messages pre-programmed and, and so incorrect and and mis- misguided, misleading. What What's the status of, of relations between uh, Beijing and Taipei? Their economies, it seems to me, are more and more intertwined every day. And any conflict between them, military conflict, would cause untold harm, both economically and militarily, would it not? Absolutely, yes. 
So, I mean, Taiwan is an integral part uh, of China's economy. Uh, somewhere between half a million to two, two million people live and work and study on the Chinese mainland. Taiwanese uh, live and work and study on the mainland. The greatest uh, source of income, their greatest trade partner is China. So there's a deep integration between the two economies. Uh, and yet at the same time, um, you know, there is a small minority led out of the DPP that wants secession, that uh, claims that it is already independent and is seeking to uh, escalate tensions with China. And that is, as you say, it would cause untold harm. Let's talk about this, this difficult issue of the, the so-called comfort women. This is a tragic and terrible chapter in Korean history. And many Koreans believe that the Japanese government has never really taken full responsibility for its actions. Tell us about the 2015 agreement, uh, KJ. Why do so many people think that it didn't go far enough? Well, I think the 2015 agreement was, once again, very, um, you know, suspect in many ways. The first thing is that it, nobody has seen the written agreement. Oh, boy. On treaties requires a written document. All we have are verbal uh, readouts from what was exchanged between the two leaders. So that's already problematic. But more than that, uh, there was no consultation with the comfort women, the victims themselves. And there wasn't a real apology. There was some kind of you know, verbal statement between the two leaders. But it doesn't really rise to the level of an apology in, in, as most people would understand it. And most damaging, the agreement comes with a gag order. That is, it requires South Korea to remove a Comfort Women Memorial and to never bring up the topic again in international fora. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. Yeah, so this is exactly what you know, the opposite of what the Comfort Women have been asking for. They wanted education and memorialization along with reparations and apology. And so this is extraordinarily uh, problematic. And uh, we have to understand it as part of the U.S. pivot to Asia. Starting with the Obama administration, the U.S. decided that in order to effectively contain China, it had to create a trilateral alliance between Japan, South Korea, and the United States. The problem is all this, uh, you know, unresolved history between uh, Japan and uh, South Korea. And so they brokered very rapidly this shotgun agreement, hoping that this issue would go away. Uh, and also because the comfort women issue is such a delegitimizing issue for the Japanese military and its remilitarization. And so this was forced through, but there was such extraordinary uh, protest in South Korea against this that eventually when the new administration, Moon Jae-in, took power, he essentially declared it null and void. The Japanese finally apologized for forcing these women into subjugation, but apologies really don't go far enough. What are they doing now to atone for the past, this past behavior and to promote current Korean-Japanese relations? I mean, it seems to me that, that demanding in an agreement that, that the memorial for the comfort women be removed is exactly the opposite 
direction that the Japanese ought to be going. You know, they should be going, they should be approaching uh, Korean society uh, bowed in shame and asking, what can we do? Tell us what we can do to try to make this better. Well, you know, the thing is the Japanese have never apologized for uh, World War II, what they did to Asia. No. During That's true. Organization. 35 million Chinese alone are expect, uh, suspected of being you know, killed during this uh, period. But um, the Japanese have a, a, a group called Nippon Kake, and they are extreme far-right uh, nationalists. They want to bring back the Japanese imperial system, uh, and they are completely and totally unrepentant. Uh, they believe that Japan did nothing wrong, that they were actually the victim. And all of the key members of the current cabinet and the previous cabinet and the one before that have been members of this far-right organization. So they don't believe in apologizing. And if we look at the 2015 uh, uh, agreement, uh, I mean, not to be too technical, but an apology has five components. Recognition, recognition that something wrong was done. Responsibility, taking responsibility that you were the agent of this harm. Uh, a statement of report, uh, remorse. Well, this is what we often think of as apology, but of remorse and then reparations and repair, uh, promise not to repeat. And then in this situation, ratification, this is what I call the five or six R's. Now, the Japanese have not done any of the above. The only thing that is remotely approaching an apology is that they've made some kind of apologetic statements, but they've dropped the subject and the object in their language. So it's just a generic uh, statement of feelings. Uh, and not long after the 2015 agreement, the Japanese parliament actually passed a bill saying that it was not apologizing for uh, the comfort women uh, issue. Far between. This is nothing like an apology. And this, you know, has exacerbated relations con consistently. Yeah, I took a look at some of the reporting uh, surrounding the 2015 agreement. Uh, and uh, one of the things that was absolutely shocking to me, disgusting, really, is that it called for paying the women who still survive and the families of the women who no longer survive a total of $7.8 million. That's like less than $100 each. Uh, this is an insult, I think. Uh, former President Moon froze the deal because he said that it didn't take into account the women's wishes, that it was undignified. Um, I think he, he's right, my own personal opinion. What happens next, KJ? This new government said that the, that the agreement is official, it's done, the issue's over, time to move on. So what happens for, for Koreans, especially those women who were comfort uh, women or the families that are left behind? Well, you know, this is this is the tragedy of it is that, you know, um, between two and four hundred thousand women conscripted into sexual slavery, uh, 75 to up to 90 percent of them killed during their enslavement. Uh, and now this issue is is fading away. You know, there were 46 comfort women in 2015. Currently, there are 12. They're dying out. Uh, and this is the long-term strategy of both the Japanese 
uh, I would say the U.S. Yes. Current administration, as well as the pro-Japanese, the Japanese Quisling administration that is coming into power in in a few weeks in Korea, so they expect it to go down uh, the memory hole. That you know the time is on their side, but that that said, this will not go over well with the Korean people, and it's already an international. Issue this the comfort women issue is really the world's largest Me Too claim in the world, and it has caught it. It's codified in the Rome Statute now in its uh, you know um, denunciation and criminalization of wartime rape. So the comfort women activists uh, want to take it uh, to the UN. We'll see if that works. Uh, but in the meantime, what this signals for Korea in general is that. The UN presidency and Foreign Minister Park Jin, who says he will institute this deal as official, it just signals, I think, the deep misogyny of this administration. It's really turning uh, the dial back on women's rights and human rights. Uh, and um, I, I think the U.S. is is fine with that as long as it gets its geostrategic advantage. This is shocking to me. So I have to ask you then, if if the position of the government is that the agreement is official and that the the issue is over, are they taking down or have they taken down the memorial to the comfort women? Well, uh, the agreement requires them to. Yes. Whether that will happen or not remains to be seen. I would expect, you know, massive civil protests. Oh, I would agree. And- when it was first signed in 2015, uh, thousands of people, you know, camped out in circles the memorial to prevent it from being taken down. And I can see the same kind of thing happening again. I, I would agree with that. I, I'd be surprised, frankly, if if we didn't see that kind of a reaction from the, the Korean people. Um, a little further afield, KJ, I wanted to ask you about Israel's recent decision to add the yuan to its basket of foreign currency reserves. This comes on the heels of a recent Saudi decision to sell oil to China in yuan rather than in dollars. Are we looking at a sea change in international finance here? Or is this sort of a temporary blip in international finance? Certainly, the United States has been working hard to see that this kind of thing, these kinds of transactions didn't happen ever since the 1970s. And here we are with two such transactions in in two weeks. Yes, Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, it's a sea change or the tipping point, but it is the constant accrual, the constant drip drip of uh, change that will result in uh, fundamental structural changes in the system of international finance. Just going back to Israel, you know, the central bank traditionally only held uh, dollars, euro and pounds. Now it's diversifying. And so it's uh, currently holding uh, about 2% of yuan and U.S. holdings will drop to about 61% from 66%. Uh, But this has to do with a global trend of U.S. reserves falling. Uh, The total reserves that the Israeli bank is holding is only about $4 billion in Chinese yuan. It's symbolic. It does signal a lack of confidence and expected loss of value. 
and this is a global trend. At the same time, you see uh, a global trend of China's yuan uh, holding in Ch- Chinese yuan as well. I mean, it's only been on the special drawing right since 2015, so it's risen very fast. So I would say all of this is adding up. I mean, the you know the basic structure is that if we look at the global economy, other countries export things to us. What does the U.S. export in return? Of course, it exports crops, high-tech, financial services, weapons, fuel, but mostly it exports dollars. Now, how does it earn those dollars to export? Well, the dirty secret is it just prints them. It prints as much as it wants, and it's possible because it's constant demand for U.S. dollars is a global reserve currency, and this is tied to petrodollar recycling. Once you undermine uh, petrodollar recycling, you undermine the U.S. exorbitant privilege, the you know the endless credit card that we've had, and that signals that you know the financial uh, structure will shift in deep and fundamental ways. Tell us, too, about the state of Russian-Chinese relations. The the Chinese are walking a tightrope, it seems to me, between supporting their ally China or trying to improve relations with, with uh, I'm sorry, their ally Russia and trying to improve relations with Russia, uh, trying to, st- to strengthen economic ties with Russia, and then on the other side, not angering the West while this war is going on. Um, the former head of the Global Times, which is a state-run Chinese uh, newspaper, says that China should be preparing for war with the United States. So my question to you then is, what do Chinese policymakers think? Do they think that China is actually headed to war with the United States? I think they're concerned about it. They certainly don't want war. They want good win-win relations with the United States. And they don't certainly you know, see themselves as becoming the unipolar hegemon. They believe in you know, mutual coexistence according to uh, you know, the UN Charter. But that said, I think they've been worried about hostilities with the United States for quite a long time. Uh, China and Russia, you know, have been tightening their relations uh, precisely because of this perceived hostility or actual hostility from the United States. Um, In China, there are different factions. There are certain factions that uh, did believe in, you know, following the Western line, integrating more deeply with the West. And these factions lost out in 2013 when Xi Jinping was elected president. We have to understand Xi Jinping was elected in response to belligerent U.S. signaling. That is to say, AFC battle, the doctrine of war against China, the pivot to Asia, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and then in 2018, you know, national security strategy, NDS declared China revisionist power. And in 2022, the NDS states that China is the U.S.'s key enemy. So for the Chinese, they cannot not prepare for war, because that is everything that the U.S. has been signaling with China since the last decade. You hear these comments every once in a while from Chinese military officials saying that they're worried about war with the United States and that they are feel forced to prepare for war with the United States. You don't necessarily hear those kinds of statements from American policymakers, but if you look at the actions of U.S. policymakers, Um, If I were Chinese, I'd be worried about it. 
Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of K.J. No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region, and he's a member of Veterans for Peace. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Should we take a break? We actually have a couple of other news stories. Maybe we can... Do you want to hear some tech stories real quick? Yeah, Do you want to hear some breaking news about... God, I'm looking forward to the day we don't have to talk about Elon Musk, but... Breaking news from just before we started the show. He says he has the yeah. money for his uh, bid to, to take Twitter and, private. And it's a little more than we thought. It's $46.5 billion. $46.5 billion. Cash. He says he wants to maybe try and take it straight to shareholders to see if they'll buy. So, like, he's keeping this up. Yeah, I think there was some speculation. Maybe this is a charade. Maybe he just needs a little more attention. Maybe, you know, Tesla needs a little boost. I think Tesla is actually... Uh, doing great right yeah, now. Yeah, they're doing I, great. I saw a headline yeah. that I can't remember the specifics of. Yep. But yeah, so he's continuing. If, if, if it's a charade, he's certainly dragging it out and appears to be really serious well, what about What about it. all of these tunnels that he was drilling under Southern California? He's going to bore these tunnels and do the high-speed, uh, the hyper loop. I, just high-speed cars, right? So he's going right. to solve traffic by just building more road and having more like single, you know, single family, single person cars instead of trains and, you know, the things that other countries have done to alleviate their traffic problems. Yeah. There's another tech story that I was delighted by today. And that is that a Brazilian judge has ruled yeah. that Apple, I love this, Apple has to pay an individual man about a thousand US dollars for not including a power adapter with his new iPhone. I think yep. this is a great story, right? Agreed. Because, you know, the, the judge found that the company is just trying to make customers buy two of its products so that one product will fully work. Right. Which is absolutely right. Shame on them. Yeah. Apple said, hey, we are we are actually giving you a a cable. It just won't plug into anything else that we've given you, but you can use it with a non-Apple adapter. The judge said that is not sufficient. No. Apple also Good. said it stopped providing these power adapters out of concern for the environment, except it still does make them. You just have to buy them separately. So How again, offensive. I know. But like, yeah, this is the thing. We get you hooked on this. I mean, yeah, you, you need yeah. this product. You need it for your daily life. We've yeah. sold you on the idea that this is the best one. We have the best security and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And like. Yeah, but unfortunately, you just are going to need to buy a different accessory to to power it. I remember the first iPad that I bought. It was that that Gen 1 iPad. Mm. And I remember being surprised that it didn't come with like an owner's manual. And I said something to my brother, who's, you know, Joe Apple. And he said, oh, no, Apple doesn't do that. You have to buy the book separately. So I went on Amazon and it was like 25 bucks. I said, forget it. I'm just going to teach myself how to use it. So now we've come all the way down to power cords. Mm -hmm. It's just outrageous. And again, this is a how much is Apple worth at this point? Seriously. But we really want to what, squeeze it. We want to sell you a quarter trillion, a $1,200 phone. But then Ridiculous. we really need to get an extra whatever, 20 bucks for this adapter. It's outrageous. We are going to take a quick break here. And we're going to come back and talk about something electronics related. When we come back here, you're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm Michelle Woody here with John Kiriakou talking even more about lithium. It's not because we just love batteries so much, but it is going to be important and it is going to be, uh, you know, it it is, among other metals, uh, about to be funded uh, amply yes. with public funds. And so it's important to look at what those funds could be going toward and uh, whether we are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past as we try to extract this new substance that is somehow going to be the thing that saves us from climate change, right. except basically emulating the same processes of the past and uh, using and relying on the same companies of the past. So I have my doubts. We're joined now by Max Wilbert. He's a longtime organizer, writer, and wilderness guide, and the author of the book Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. Max, thanks for being here again. Thanks for having me on the show. So um, we have been talking about lithium for the last couple of days here on the show. We had Mexico yesterday voting to nationalize lithium exploration and production or voting earlier this week, and we talked about it yesterday. And we have the Biden administration in this country announcing new funding initiatives for the mining of lithium and other metals that will be needed for green energy projects. And it was interesting to me that it was the publication Scientific American that was this week highlighting some concerns that we should have about the process going forward of extracting more lithium in the United States. Scientific American's article noted something that we have talked about on this show very often, that the push toward what we have defined as green energy could undercut the administration's expressed commitment to racial equality. And the story included this uh, illuminating tidbit. Finance company MSCI estimates the majority of U.S. reserves for cobalt, lithium and nickel are located within 35 miles of Native American reservations. And so it really sounds like the same energy tune just different energy lyrics. And so, Max, I know we have talked to you before about about Thacker Pass specifically, and I, I want to get an update on uh, the sort of legal battles to stop the lithium mine from being opened there. But at a general level here, how concerned are you about lithium fever in the U.S. right now and the money that is, you know, the, the wave of funding that's coming toward it? Well, I'm, I'm very concerned. I, you know, I'm someone who's been worried about global warming for a couple decades now and has been fighting against it. And I just want to put that out there at the beginning. You know, I'm, I've campaigned against tar sands, both in the United States and Canada. I fought the fracking industry. I've blockaded fossil fuel equipment, you know, through nonviolent direct action. And, call, you know, I've even called for the, the moral righteousness of sabotaging fossil fuel infrastructure to help save the planet. So I'm not a defender of the fossil fuel industry. But with that said, uh, there is a lithium fever going on right now. And this whole uh, idea of green energy, what I keep saying about it, is the only thing that's green is green backs. It's about money. There's trillions of dollars at stake in this green energy uh, transition that's being promoted uh, by governments and nonprofit organizations and international groups around the world. But I am very skeptical that it's actually going to help the planet. Yeah, the same. And John and I mentioned this earlier in the show. But again, it it feels like a, a complete repetition from from what we've seen before down to this this editorial uh, or an, an opinion piece from Bloomberg Opinions that The Washington Post reprinted uh, that says, want green energy? 
cut red tape. And so we are really even back to the same the the same rhetoric that we are facing a climate crisis, not because of, you know, cover ups by the oil industry and a century of burning uh, fossil fuels or longer than that, obviously. Um, but no, it's because there's too much red tape. And so they're advocating for uh, revisiting all of these different regulations that supposedly stand in the way of this uh, beautiful green future of, you know, uh, unfettered access to cobalt, nickel and lithium, no matter where it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, like so much of politics today in the United States, a lot of this issue comes down to virtue signaling. And it comes down to people trying to show everyone how much they care about justice and about the natural world and about energy independence and about all these other issues at the same time. Uh, And in reality, people often fail to meet even one of those goals. Uh, So I think that you know, with this this lithium issue, we are seeing exactly what you say. We're seeing the same type of exploitation of native communities, poor communities, rural communities. Uh, we're seeing international uh, colonialism, really a form of imp- economic imperialism playing out, you know, as uh, lithium is extracted in places like Tibet and Chile and Australia, uh, again, primarily impacting those, those poor and, and native communities. And, and those minerals are being shipped to, you were just criticizing Apple before I came on, uh, being shipped to some of the largest corporations in the world to go into, uh, uh, frankly, unnecessary consumer goods for people in the first world, among the, the wealthiest people in the world. And this is not change. This is more of the same to, you know, to quote a sort of shoddy political uh, line from from a former presidential election. Uh, this isn't change. This is more of the same. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing with uh, this boom in lithium demand. And I think also with the uh, the wind and solar industries, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I'm a, I think global warming is a huge problem. But you look at uh, Obama and under the Obama administration, uh, uh, regulations around protections for uh, birds like bald eagles and golden eagles were slashed by the Obama administration at the behest of the wind industry. You know, that's effective lobbying right there. Money talks. Yeah, I mean, you don't solve this problem by pretending that you aren't relying on, in some cases, the very same very same companies that have been committing terrible violations for for decades now. Right? It's not as though metals mining is any better or more ethical or cleaner than oil extraction or natural gas extraction or, or fracking, you know, and so it's just it. it it is a shame that at every step we have to say, yes, we still think climate change is a problem. Yes, we oppose the use of fossil fuels in order to sort of set the stage to say we should be more careful and not, you know, not do exactly what we did before. I mean, this idea that red tape is standing in the way of lithium mining when we are only now in this country enacting some of the most basic consultation requirements when it comes to uh, implementing projects on on native land or land that is, you know, maybe outside of reservations, but still has uh, historical cultural significance. It's it's absolutely outrageous. I also want to ask you um, to remind us before we get into specifically what's happening at Thacker Pass. Can you remind us of what the process of lithium mining is like? Because uh, I, I don't want people to have the idea that it is somehow um, 
clean. You know, that somehow the process of getting these metals out of the ground is better than the process of getting oil and gas out of the ground. Absolutely. There are two main ways that are used to mine lithium. And one comes from these old dry lake beds in places like Nevada or Tibet or Australia, where it's very dry. And you get, you know, over eons, you get uh, water flowing down into these lake beds, and then it just evaporates out like the Great Salt Lake at Salt Lake City, right? Um, this really concentrates a lot of different minerals in the, uh, in the area around the lake and in the water, if there's still water there. And so uh, this is called lithium brine. And so these companies will drill down, they'll pump out the lithium, uh, the lithium rich water from underground, and then they'll basically spread it out in a very large, shallow pond. Um, I mean, a pond is sort of a misnomer, these uh, gigantic stretches of land and evaporate off the water and then they'll process lithium out of the salts that remain. The biggest environmental impact of this type of lithium extraction is water use. It takes about 500,000 tons of water to produce one ton of lithium using this method. So it's an incredibly intensive uh, use of water. The other type of lithium mining is when the lithium is in clay or hard rock. And that is very similar to mountaintop removal for coal mining or copper mining or iron ore mining. Uh, Basically, you have a a landscape. In the case of Thacker Pass, it's this beautiful mountainside, very biodiverse, very culturally significant to the indigenous people. And the company plans to come in, bulldoze all of the life off of that land kill all the plants and animals that are there and use explosives and heavy equipment to dig a giant pit in the ground and then process the ore out of the clay and the rock using uh, very corrosive and intensive chemical processes. So again, in the case of Thacker Pass, that means importing uh, massive quantities of sulfur annually, which ironically will be sourced from oil refineries. Um, And if you've ever been to New York City, and seeing the Empire State Building, uh, we're talking about two Empire State Buildings per year worth of sulfur that this one mine would import to process uh, the lithium. That's coming from oil refineries, and they're paying for that. So uh, some of the money that is being paid for these lithium-based products and electric vehicle batteries and so on is going to end up right in the hands of those oil companies. Yeah, let's talk Let's talk about Thacker Patch, uh, Pass in a little bit more detail because it is, I think, a... A, a useful sort of microcosm of this discussion. Uh, this is the biggest proposed lithium mine in the United States. We have talked to you about it before. We have talked to other um, native opponents of the mine, you know, at least a year ago. Uh, it has been opposed for a long time by environmental activists, by uh, members of the Paiute and Shoshone tribes there because it would destroy culturally and historically significant sites for those tribes, and also because the process that you've just described would genuinely threaten their water sources. And yet, uh, just last week, Lithium Americas, which is the the uh, company behind the mine, they applied to the Energy Department for a government loan to finance some of these activities that it is really keen to get started. There have been a, a number of different legal tactics taken uh, and lawsuits filed against this mine. And so I want to ask, uh, what, what's the legal update in, with opposition to the mine? I know um, I know. recently uh, uh, the company was trying to get a judge to throw out a lawsuit brought by uh, another tribe that had joined the opposition. So tell us, tell us where things stand legally with Backer Pass. 
Well, it's it's a sordid tale. And the reality is, as as I'm sure you and most of the listeners will understand, is that the legal system in this country prioritizes corporations and profit above everything else. So we, we do have some environmental laws. We do have laws like the National Historic Preservation Act or the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Those are weak laws. They don't fundamentally say you can't destroy the land, you can't poison the water, you can't uh, do these disrespectful acts and uh, sacrilegious acts on these native sacred sites. Uh, they don't say that, unfortunately. They just say you have to consult, you have to study the issues, you have to have public comment. Uh, to me, it's really the illusion of democracy. It's the illusion of popular control. But the truth is, these private corporations have much more power than the people do, than the tribes do in this type of situation. So the lawsuit is coming to an end. Uh, we are expecting final decisions sometime around July. There are probably going to be a few more rounds back and forth since then. Uh, but uh, honestly, I'm not expecting a good outcome because that's not something that we see in the courts. And that's why we have movements uh, around the world trying to uh, push through some fundamental changes to the system of law to give rights to the natural world, for example. Uh, th those rights aren't recognized in our legal system, just like uh, black people and slaves, people from Africa did not have legal rights back in the 1850s. Uh, you know, luckily that situation has changed, but it took a hell of a lot of organizing and the bloodiest war in American history to change it. Um, it it's going to take a lot to change these laws around uh, the natural world as well. So I don't want us to live under any illusions that uh, the government, the corporate powers, and our legal system really respect and protect the natural world because they don't. And that's why we're in all the uh, different ecological crises that we're in right now. I mean, the other thing is, and again, I think I, I support the idea of um, finding, finding ways legally to more heavily weight uh, the protection of land and, and water and ecosystems. But it also seems like in a lot of these cases, especially because so many of these projects are on or near um, Native reservations, we could start with just respecting those rights, you know, and start with processes that genuinely do include um, consultation with the people that live there who are often Native people, right? And like a real consultation that it actually accepts when the answer is no. It is, it's like, I was going to say it's funny, it's not funny, it's apropos, and it's extremely sad that, you know, it's like, okay, well, for, forget it. We're never going to get, Not you're not saying this, but, you know, the idea that we have for so long been leapfrogging over the rights of, of uh, these people whose land was colonized and stolen that will say, okay, maybe if we cannot convince a court system to acknowledge the rights these people have over the land, maybe what we can do is uh, get some rights for the land itself. It's a very sad state of affairs, Max. Absolutely. And, you know, one of my uh, friends who's a native guy from Micmac territory often says that poverty is a political weapon. And that's something that you see with the native communities around this country is that, you know, colonization has included this deliberate process of impoverishment. It's really a forced proletarianization, just like what happened in Europe, uh, you know, over several centuries, whereby, you know, people who had been living close to the land in relationship with the land, you know, based in community, I'm not saying it was a utopia, no. but that, that 
that somewhat stable society was deliberately destroyed in order to force people into uh, factory jobs, for example. This is the enclosure of the commons. Mm -hmm. And that's what Mm -hmm. we've seen in this country as well. And, you know, once you make people dependent on uh, your mining jobs, your industrial jobs, your your cities and so on, um, then people have a really hard time uh, standing with their traditions, standing with the land. So we're really blessed in this situation that uh, a bunch of the regional tribes have stood up and have said, this is a really important place and these values are so important to us and we're going to fight for the land and fight for Thacker Pass or Pahimaha as it's known in, in Paiute. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about water in the West just a little bit. And forgive me if we're uh, if we you know move out of an area of your expertise. But like in this uh, Scientific American article, it also notes that uh, a tracker maintained by the Center for Biological Diversity notes that there are at least 50 different lithium mining projects in various development stages in Nevada alone. And I'm looking at this map and it just happens to show, you know, that California-Nevada border is a place that I spent some time in because I walked I walked on a trail that sort of runs along beside it. And I'm just realizing that, I mean, if I had thought about this, I would have realized it before. This is not a place where there is a lot of water to start with. You know what I mean? This is a place where water is already relatively rare, at least, you know, for us on the East Coast who get uh, rained on all the time. It's already rare and precious. And we have this ongoing um, mega drought in the rest in the West that is lowering um, uh, reservoir levels to historic levels that people should be worried about. And so, Max, I just want to ask, like, you know, these this is going to threaten an already you know, scarce to begin with under the best of conditions, threatened now because of this ongoing drought and now threatened by, you know, these 50 mining projects, at least in the state alone, you know, on on the basis of threats to water alone, uh, these projects should be probably most of them should be just absolutely stopped. I wanted to ask you about, you know, are we just completely walking straight into aside from the uh, loss of cultural heritage, aside from the erosion of native rights, a water crisis. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Thacker Pass mine would use 4 million gallons of water per day and pollute much of it. Mm -hmm. That's just one mine. And we are seeing this massive water crisis in the West that's not being driven just by mining, but also industrial agriculture in the middle of the desert. You know, Nevada is the driest state in the country. And what we're seeing play out there is what historians and archaeologists see playing out in places like Iran and Iraq. You know, what's now what, what we think of as the Fertile Crescent that is now sand in large part, that is desolate because people made decisions over multiple generations that prioritize short term profit and their short term interests over the long term ecological health and stability of their own society. When a culture makes choices like that over the long term, it is committing ecocide and it is ultimately committing suicide. That's the direction we're headed. And that's why I think people need to get angry about this, need to start taking action, need to stand up, get off the couch and start organizing, you know, to fight these specific projects, but more broadly to confront and change this culture and and economy of consumption, of uh, massive amounts of energy use and waste of uh, gratuitous uh, wealth that we have in this country and move back into a real positive relationship with 
the natural world. That means abandoning growth. That means moving away from this economic system that we have now. And to me, that's a pretty revolutionary change. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, I think it would be wonderful if there was, if, you know, someone did come up with a technological fix for these problems that we have created and continue to create, you know, something that will eat the plastic in the ocean and that is now uh, permeated all of our bodies, you know, something that... a. a, a Green energy that doesn't cause all this destruction, but I don't necessarily think we will. As an interim step, I want to ask, do you view it positively, uh, moves like those by the Mexican government to nationalize lithium production? I mean, no, it is not the... um, the, the change in lifestyle and the move away from consumption that I think we agree is probably what the real solution is. Uh, but it is it a is it a a realistic, uh, positive move in any way? Well, there's no getting around the fact that uh, corporations and an international economic network of globalization, global capitalism is a predatory system. And it is preying on uh, poor nations, colonized nations around the world, um, and and also within uh, wealthy nations as well, areas within wealthy nations, uh, for private profit, right? That is a immoral and unjust system. So in that sense, I think that uh, nationalization can be a positive step in the right direction, potentially. Um, But that's not necessarily the case. I mean, you look at the example of China, of course, which is just this hyper-capitalist economy uh, combined with authoritarianism, and you have many state-owned enterprises, but the ecological devastation that's being uh, enacted by these those state-run enterprises is is enormous. Um, so just because something is is owned and operated by the state does not mean it will make uh, ecologically sound decisions. Um, that said, you know countries like Bolivia, which also uh, have nationalized lithium reserves, have not done nearly as much mining as places like Chile and Argentina, where uh, the mining is dominated by corporate and international financial interests. So we'll see is the short answer. We'll see. The answers to these things aren't simple, and there's a lot of uh, geopolitics and you know, financial warfare going on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, my hope is that people and communities, again, will stand up and protect the land and stand with the water and future generations uh, against these type of big industrial projects. Mm-hmm. Well, Max Wilbert, thanks for joining us again and enlightening us on all of this. Max is an organizer, writer and wilderness guide. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find more about your work? Sure. Well, you can learn more about Thacker Pass at protectthackerpass.org. And my website is maxwilbert.org. Thank Thank you you. so much, Max. We'll talk to you again soon. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with a few last headlines. So don't wait. (laughs) Don't worry. We'll still be live in D.C. We'll still be on Radio Sputnik and we will be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. So there is a little bit of breaking news. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm not gloating. I'm just saying that there's breaking news that uh, in just the last hour, uh, what's it called now? Warner Brothers Discovery. Warner Brothers Discovery announced that they will shut down CNN Plus. We talked about CNN Plus yesterday on the on the show. We said it was a it was a bust. It was uh, not attracting any viewers, losing money. It's only been in operation for 23 days. Yeah, I mean, that's faster than uh, Al Jazeera America's. Yeah, <laughs> at least on, Al Jazeera America hung on for a while. Yeah, yeah. But they, they announced that they're just shutting the whole thing down. Might as well just cut their losses. Yeah. Uh, the other breaking news is that just in the last 15 minutes, the Florida legislature, for the very first time ever, has voted to strip Disney of its tax breaks. Not just its tax breaks. I had always heard that Disney was this, this autonomous entity in, in Florida. It was self-governing. There's, an, there's a, a Disney police force, for mm-hmm. example. They've, all, they's, they've also been stripped of that. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, is, uh, this is a war yeah. between uh, Governor DeSantis and uh, the Disney hierarchy, it's not like you can just pick Disney up and move it to North Carolina. It is interesting also how many people are lear- learning about, you know, these these breaks, the extent of uh, tax breaks and law, law breaks, right? Legal breaks oh, yeah. that the biggest corporations in this country can get. And so if that opens oh, people's yeah. eyes to, you know, what is actually happening and how much leeway uh, you, you know, you are given as an entity m- merely because you have so much money and are perceived to be so powerful. That will be that will be a, a useful ripple effect from and, this and war. And these tax breaks didn't start yesterday. They yeah, started no. in 1972. Yeah, they've they've had these tax breaks since 1972. And they're just being dragged out of Disney by the stormtroopers who you realize are not they're not actually you know, they're they're not cosplayers. They're right. not uh actors the actual police force yeah i I, uh, worked for a guy two-time pulitzer prize finalist who uh i don't know he always liked writing these books that i thought were downers right one of them was the dark side of disney oh yeah i said to him why don't you just leave disney alone everybody likes disney right and he said let me tell you something about disney he said nobody has ever died at disney I said, well, that can't can't be true. Yeah. He said, no, no. They die in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Yep. It's the happiest place on earth, damn it, he said. I mean, you're allowed. What are you allowed to do if you're if you're wealthy enough? I exactly. Mean, I wonder if nobody ever dies at Apple either. Nobody ever dies at Tesla. I mean, that's exactly. what we're coming to. I hate Ron DeSantis. I think he's a terrible person. Terrible. But, you know, maybe this maybe in in a great world and a beautiful world, this uh, has unintended consequences that come back to bite all of them. Well, you know, that seems to be the way it's going to play out. I mean, it's my this clash of the titans. Um, there's plenty of room to hate everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the in the end, I think everybody's going to be unhappy. And we just sit back with the popcorn. Yeah. And just watch. We should probably talk about this, uh, this snafu yesterday where the Capitol was briefly evacuated. Oh, boy. Oh after boy. Pol- police identified an aircraft, they said posed a probable threat. Uh, the plane was carrying members of the U.S. Army Golden Knights who were going to parachute into Nationals Park for a pre-game demonstration. Right. Um, but, you know, the fact that 
the Capitol Police did not know about this. Yep. Nobody Sent bothered to tell them. fleeing from the Capitol. The, the, the FAA, the Capitol Police and Nats Park just not talking to each other about this. It's being pointed out, of course, that aren't we aren't we supposed to be all focused on defense and, you know, the defense of our precious members of Congress after January 6th? And yet no one no one thought, oh, maybe we should tell them we're going to fly a plane yeah. right over a part of town where planes are not supposed to be flying. Yeah. Well, I remember I remember uh, in the in the days after 9-11, President Putin saying that he was shocked that the Pentagon didn't have surface to air missiles around it. Like every Ministry of Defense has surface to air missiles around it. How can you not see that this plane is coming to crash into you? And, you know, here we are more than 20 years later and we still don't have our act together. Yeah. On on defenses inside the city of Washington. What if they, couldn't you imagine, though, if they had had surface to air missiles? Yeah, you're they would have shot the yeah, uh, they shoot skydivers down, down. Shoot down a bunch of soldiers who were coming to fly in. And I mean, this is the thing. It's good. I'm glad. Don't put surface to air missiles around all of our infrastructure. We're shooting down pelicans constantly yeah. or whatever, you know, like At climate change. At least pick change. up the phone and say, hey, listen, we're going to do this thing for the game. Yeah. We're going to have these guys uh, parachute out and land on the field. Yeah. So yeah. don't worry. And the Congress, Congress and these guys are always getting on D.C. for being, uh, you know, inept yes. and unable to handle their own affairs. Come on. Yeah, this is this is the feds. All right. It's with, all on them. With one minute left, do you want to hear about Omarosa or a wedding tragedy? Oh, the, the wedding tragedy. Omarosa, we can say real quickly, 1.3 million she won. Trump has to uh, pay her legal fees. Trump's going to fight it. Just going to say they've, they've already said they're going to fight it. Uh, the wedding tragedy, kudos to The Washington Post for publishing this on 420. It actually happened in um, February in Florida, uh, where it appears that a bride and her caterer colluded to put marijuana in all the food that their 50 guests ate at the wedding. And the <laughs> stories of what happened to these people, they became dizzy. One found herself on her hands and knees, vomiting up her dinner. Another was convinced she was going to die. Her heart was going to stop. She sent herself a text so people would know what happened to her. Then she Other stopped at Taco said, Bell on the way home. It is so It is so funny the way they describe I mean, yeah, it's like I started having crazy thoughts. I didn't know what was happening. I started feeling unwell, went into the kitchen looking for water because that happens when you're you're stoned. You're in a hotel. I don't know where the water is. I know I'm supposed to not go into the kitchen, but I can't remember why. So let me just wander through these doors. Everyone's looking at me normal. It's fine. I'm totally normal. I'm going to ask the head chef for a glass of water, please, because my throat is parched. Just hilarious. Guys, not the way. Not the way to celebrate 420 no. by dosing everyone uh, unexpectedly, <laughs> even with weed, man. If you eat a lot of weed, it's a bad feeling. You're not, you're not yeah. convincing anyone of the, the, the fun of your particular party drug by doing that. Crack me up. Yeah, so they're in legal trouble. Oh, I bet they are. Yeah, as they should be. It was a stupid idea. Yeah. The caterer. Yeah, anyway, I thought that was a great story. So thank you, Washington Post. I spent a lot of time <laughs> criticizing you, but you, you did a good job on that day. We're going to have to leave it here, John. Uh, I want to say thanks to our engineers and the producers as usual. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you listeners for listening. We will talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>